Welcome to Empowered Returns, a show that surfaces forward-thinking real estate advice that investors and developers need to help them invest smarter and build better. Uh, we are thrilled to have Brian Lee here, principal of Transom Real Estate. Uh, I know PT and I have been looking forward to this conversation for quite a while. For and sure. yeah. And we'll dive uh, deep into your background in uh, real estate development, history starting Transom uh, Real Estate, and and uh, all things Brian Lee and Transom here in Boston. So we're excited. Yeah, it sounds fun to me. Hope not to bore you guys too much, but happy to have a conversation and been excited about it for a while now. Yeah. Awesome. Fantastic. Um, why don't we kind of hop right in? We can just talk maybe a little bit about your background to start. You know, I know you jumped right into real estate investment development right after college. So what was there, you know, what was the impetus to get you into, into real estate in the first place? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, um, it's not like I came from a huge real estate family background or anything like that. Um, studied finance in undergrad. And when I finished, I just wasn't drawn to like the stock market to me. It was like this intangible piece of paper that just traded around and, and you had very little control over what the value was. Um, so I just kind of gravitated towards the sticks and bricks a little bit more, like real assets were, were interesting to me. Um, and then the architecture of that too. Um, the, the thing that I think was most intriguing was that it involves so many different disciplines, right? Mm. Even as an, as a kind of moron 22 year old, <laughs> you can still like look at a building and be like, I like that. Or that looks like, you know, a terrible building. Um, and so, um, yeah, you start to like develop a little bit of that. And then you, as you dig in a little more, you realize, okay, I can start to work with, you know, civil engineers and structural engineers and all these different trades and construction people. And you really get exposure across the spectrum of so many different industries. Um, and I knew nothing about any of those, but that was the excitement, right? It was like, mm. there's a lot to learn here. Yeah. So I just, I thought that that was pretty interesting to, to try to dig into. Yeah, totally. I mean, I always, I always say a lot of people say it, but you know, real estate and real estate development is really a team sport. So it's, it's, you know, you got a lot of different disciplines that are coming into play to, 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 you know, to build and entitle, you know, and, and develop and finance really cool projects. So that's what, that's what I love about it too. Yeah. Yeah. It keeps you on your toes for sure. I do remember the first um, time my parents put me on an airplane we came up to Boston, actually. I was I grew up in Florida. Um, we came up to Boston, and actually, we stood right outside this building, and I was looking up at the Prue, and I was like, that's incredible, right? Like, <laughs> like you know, I think I was like in third grade, and I'd never seen a building that big before. And I just remember that as, as an experience, not that cool. that, like, truly influenced anything, but... Um, Sounds like you know, it did, Brian, actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Funny how that works. I think we all have these, like, you know, old memories that you can look back on with the hindsight of being an adult and being now for most of us, you know, well into 20 plus years in, in the industry yeah. and realize, well, I was always kind of headed in that direction. Mine was, uh, on, on Christmas used to like build crazy elaborate, like Lego space stations and stuff with my dad. Oh, nice. And like literally <laughs> that was eating I, him at that point. And listening to him talk about it now, he's like, dude, like you realize that that was like the bane of my existence. But you know, it's funny. And I was just always drawn to kind of that, that building element of things yeah, and, yeah. and it so obviously translated as, as real estate became a career track. So it's, it's cool how that stuff works. It's yeah. a good story with the pro. Nice. Nice. And uh, so, Brian, then you, then you kind of, from your early couple of jobs, you know, you jumped it to the MIT real estate program, right? So yeah. want to maybe talk about that a little bit. What, what drew you to that? What did you get out of it? Did you, did you sort of get what you expected going in? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. So I, I remember it was like 2007, right? So the market was like on the verge of imploding. Mm -hmm. And at that age, I kind of saw that coming, but I wasn't nearly as close to that as I probably should have been. Um, and I just decided like, I'm kind of tired of where I was doing what I was doing. I was mainly in a consulting role. Um, and you know, we would do all this work and then we'd pass along the report to somebody else and they would go have all the fun. 
I was like, well, that's not that's not <laughs> what I want to be doing. I want to be that guy. Um, and so I started applying uh, to grad schools um, and uh, just decided to like, you know, study hard, do the GMAT and just did the whole thing. Ended up applying to a bunch of schools, um, settled on, on MIT. And I'd say, you know, within six months of that decision, plus or minus, I was up in Boston, yeah, uh, Cambridge. Um, so yeah, um, I mean, it was, a, it was an unbelievable experience. I, I looked at it like, look, I think this is going to be great for the career, but I want to have this experience regardless, right? Like to me, it was just take a, a year, a full year out of your schedule and go meet people and like get reinvigorated with it. And, you know, like the passion, like get that sort of like motivation back again, where you sit in an office for like four, four years, especially those young years where mm. you're, it's the first office you've ever been in. Right. And you're like, Wow, I was like bouncing around from class to class, and I was so active. And now I'm behind this computer screen all day. Is this, is this what it's? Is this what I got to do for the next like 50 years? Um, so it was really, it was really good to just take a break from that and get different perspectives. And MIT does an amazing job with that. I mean, yeah. you've got this, the class size is fairly small. I, I think my class was plus or minus 30 people. Wow. Um, but um, I mean, half of those are coming from international countries, from you know Korea, China, Turkey. Mm. Um, Europe, like just, just really interesting stuff, Mexico. And then we had a, a handful of people from Boston and then around the country as well. Um, so that background was, was really fun. And, you know, architects and engineers and developers and brokers, all that experience was all kind of piled into one room. And it was a year of like, really just a lot of fun. Like it was a lot of, a lot of hard work, but, um, it was refreshing to just take a break from the office and, you know, go jump into something like that. Nice. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. It so sounds like a fantastic experience. I know from talking to you and some others who went through the program, it's a just, this is intensive, you know, sort of bonding, but exciting, but you know, hard, uh, but a lot of fun too, at the same time, which is, which is, which is really cool. Yeah. And you build a network from there, right? Yeah. That's... Yeah. And I, it, like, it's different than undergrad for me. It was an undergrad, you know, I was like, my main concern was having fun. Um, yeah. you're like 19 years old and like, this is a great place and you're on your own for the first time in grad school. It's a totally different story. You know, you're, you're old enough now, you're mature enough now and you just feed off that energy in the room. So everybody was in that same spot and everybody's kind of pushing each other to, to work harder and try to get smarter. And you're only here for a year. So it's like, how much can I take? Right? Like how many classes can I, yeah. can I take? All these professors are, you know, like just so accomplished in their realm and you just want to, you know, this is a once in a lifetime thing. So it's like, just dive in. So a lot of, a lot of hours because that's how we treated it. Um, but great experience. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. I think, uh, so then, then you kind of jumped into a couple of larger firms related, but I think preceded by beacon communities, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So maybe talk a little bit about those two experiences and what that, you know, what you learned and what led you to forming transom, uh, about six or seven years ago now. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, first real, um, like, uh, Job after grad school was Beacon, um, working with some super smart people over there. At the time, Howard Cohen was running the day-to-day. -day. Um, I think he's still like significantly involved, um, although maybe not in the same role that he was when I was there. Um, but I wanted to learn more about affordable housing because I think we saw that as a, a major problem. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a major problem mm -hmm. today, but it's always been a problem, yeah. right? It's yeah. just a, it's bigger now. Uh, it hasn't gotten any better. Um, but I wanted to learn a lot about that business. So we went over to Beacon. They had a giant portfolio, um, and they were looking to grow it. Um, and I worked with, uh, with Howard and with Mark Epker. And our, mm -hmm. our goal there was to try to grow the portfolio to, I think, 20,000 units at the time. Um, so we, uh, we had a little, like, G, uh, what's called a GP fund, general mm -hmm. partner fund mm -hmm. inside the company. And we were deploying that capital to buy up affordable housing um, opportunities um, as well as um, and, and sort of, like, reposition those, renovate those as well as ground up development opportunities. So 
we did that for about two and a half years and um, learned quite a bit on the affordable housing business. Um, and then uh, got an offer to go over to, at the time, it was Beal Companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so decided that um, I, had, I had learned a lot about affordable housing and wanted to get back into the market world. Cool. Cool. And so uh, what, what led you from there to forming, uh, forming Transom with, uh, with Neil and Peter? Yeah, so we were, we were at Related Beal for four-ish years. Um, each of us at a different spot. Peter was there for much longer. I think he was there about 10 years. Um, and um, it was a great experience. We learned a ton. We got a chance to work on some of the biggest projects in the city and learned so much about you know, what we wanted to do and how we think we could do things slightly differently as well. Um, and uh, I think, like, to be totally honest, at the end of the day, you just realized you're not getting any younger. And, and that it's something that we always wanted to do. And, you know, you hear this kind of like cheesy saying about the, you know, the, the regrets that you have or the things you didn't do. And you, that'll eat at you. And I didn't want to wake up when I was like 60 and say, could it have happened? Would mm-hmm. it have happened if I tried? And um, to me, people think, well, that's such a risky, op- that's such a risky move. But you can mitigate that risk in so many different ways and make it less risky personally to yourself. Um, and you can, uh, along that, that sort of spectrum of risk, you can choose where you want to be in that. Um, and so we, we focused a lot on that. We took a lot of the risk off of ourselves and decided to think long-term mm-hmm. um, about how to do something like that. Um, and so I just thought, what's the worst that would happen, right? If this doesn't work, we're going to try. And maybe something great will happen. And if it doesn't, then... I'll just go back to getting a job, right? Yeah, right I was right, pretty right, confident right. I could do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I don't, uh, it's, there was never a worry that, you know, this is all going to collapse and I'm never going to get another job again. You know, I, I was confident in my skill set and I thought if there was ever a time to try it, like this is a great time to do it. Um, so we all kind of huddled um, and decided uh, that, it, that, that the timing was right and, um, and decided to make the leap. Yeah, nice. so talk a little bit about like that planning and then that, that first year. Right. So talked about mitigating some of the risk and and obviously not wanted to have the regrets and, and really wanted to kind of take the bull by the horns and, and go out on your own and form transom. Can you just kind of walk us through with a little bit of specificity kind of how that unfolded? Sure. Yeah. So um, once we left Related Beal and formed, we formed transom, um, it took us, you know, we we come from a very institutional background. Right. So when when I think of doing things like this, it it. It's just been beat into me that uh, there are certain ways to do it. Like, you know, you get attorneys and you document things. And these are like very, you know, sophisticated documents. And we didn't, we didn't All just the like, favorite things that I have. <laughs> <laughs> Process, guys. <laughs> but I, I mean, you know, it was like, all right, if we're going to do it, this, like, let's set it up and do it right. Um, so we probably spent the first three to six months, you know, doing all of that. At the same time, looking for opportunities. And we certainly... Knowing the Boston landscape as we did, um, not everything was a fit for for our former employer, and we knew that, right? They they have a very specific thing. They have they're they're very large, so they have scale that they need to execute on. Uh, they're typically doing high rises in concrete in a select number of neighborhoods in the city, um, but yet we thought there was opportunity elsewhere, um, and so we we came thinking that um, that we could execute on some of those ideas and some of those opportunities. Um, as far as the risk goes, I guess. On one end of the spectrum, you could just jump and say, I'm going to fund this all myself. Hopefully, there's a savings account that you've you know, worked hard and scratched to save, and I'm going to fund it all myself. And, uh, and the other end of that spectrum is that we're going to raise as much capital as we can from outside investors, and it's all going to be their money, right? And, and then you can, you can adjust that in between. 
Um, and certainly raising the outside money costs money, right? That capital isn't free, um, but it takes the pressure off of you. And in this Boston market, it takes so long to get from an idea and project inception to acquisition, design, drawing, construction, stabilization, and then exit. That could be a four or five plus year process if everything goes all right. right. <laughs> and in the meantime, you're shedding millions and millions of dollars. Right? This is not a, um, a, a capital light business. And so we wanted to take the pressure off of having to produce immediate returns just to put food on the table. We wanted to think long-term about transom and how we can grow this business in a smart and, and successful way for the long term so that we'd be around for a long time. Mm. And so we, we did decide to bring on some outside um, equity to help us mm-hmm. um, to, to fund some of the startup costs, to fund some salaries, um, to keep food and, you know, on the plates and, and, um, and pay the things that we knew we had to pay to loosen the pressure a little bit so that we could go out and do the deals that we thought were the right deals to do for the company and not mm. just to get quick paychecks. So how did you, if you can talk about it, how did you, how did you structure that kind of financing or that kind of equity investment from a, from a corporate level? It sounds like not like, not on a project level. And, and, and can, if you can talk about that, how did, how did you kind of, kind of structure that or look at that? And how do you, um, how do you, how do you, um, how did you build that investment in the business and not in a project? Sure. It's a great question. Um, so yeah, the, 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 um, capital investment on the corporate side, fortunately is a lot less than what is required on the project side. I mean, at the end of the day, real estate development, um, again, not on the projects, but on the corporate side is like, you know, a, you, an office space, if you decide to take that, a uh, couple computers and some hard work and a lot of sweat and a lot of tears and a lot of <laughs> stuff like that. So, and we had plenty of all of those. Um, tears on Tuesdays every Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, um, yeah, I, I think, um, we, we, uh, partnered very with a group that we're very close with that we do a lot of work with. Um, they were able to help get transom up off the ground. Um, and they're also an institutional limited partner who was interested in funding the deals that we brought in as well. Mm. And so there was a lot in it for them. They made an investment in transom and they get a return on that investment from a corporate side. Um, but, uh, but also they had a front row seat at the so, opportunities that, that the three of us were coming out with. Yeah. So they're getting sort of a deal flow as part of the, part of the yeah, that's, investment. Yeah. That's exactly yeah, right. Yeah. And that's, like I said, the, nice the capital model. investment in transom there wasn't, wasn't free. Um, but I wouldn't do it any other way. Yeah. We align ourselves with a fantastic group. Um, they're some of the, we still do a ton of work with them today. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, like I said, it took a lot of pressure off to allow us to make the right decisions instead of just the speedy ones. Yeah, that, that, that's so helpful, I, I think, because oftentimes you see a lot of, uh, I don't know, maybe it's not the right way to put it, but for sort of flash in the pan developers that find a deal, maybe it goes well, maybe it doesn't, but, you know, next thing you know, they evaporate because they, they don't have the ability to have that long-term thinking, like it sounds like you guys strategically planned out. So, you know, I'd say, you know, smart thinking and, and good job long-term thinking, because, you know, off, you, we just see this all the time. You see, you know, you see even, even developers that have a successful project, they just you know, fail soon after if they don't find another project well, immediately or another exactly. way to play capital. Well, it's, right. it's so daunting because, I mean, even even like a due diligence on one project and, and just to get to the due diligence phase can take a long time, right? Find a site and then actually negotiate it and put it under contract can take a long time. And then due diligence alone could be 100000 north of $100,000. Mm. And you haven't even really started yet. Like you're just trying to decide if this is a good opportunity or not. You don't even know. Super risky capital there. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, you're, you're hundred percent right. There are a lot of sleepless nights early when 
Like if you're a giant international company and you've got hundreds of projects, you lose one, eh, right? I wish I didn't lose it, but I'm going to be fine. When you're a startup company and you have one, two projects and you lose one, it's a devastating right. phone call to receive. Right, right. Um, and so, you know, to, to, to have it all riding on, on if that one deal is going to work or not. Um, was something that just didn't feel like the right move to us. Yeah, and then, and then you end up forcing things and choosing yeah, the wrong deals exactly. and right, diving right, right. into and, and, you know, wrong yeah. opportunities. And we said this for years, and I mean, it's literally a concept that translates even from like, you know, your first time buyer all the way up to the big institutional level ground up development that you're doing. Like, you don't do deals just to do deals, right? You don't yeah. buy a place to buy a place. Like, you, you, it's got to be the right deal. It's got to be the exactly. right decision. Yeah. And the way you structured it to give yourself that, you know, to have the foresight to put yourself in a position where didn't have to kind of square peg round hole something that might not be the right fit and be able to focus on the right deals, I think is is really a testament to you know what you guys have been able to do because you got some good projects. Well, I th um, thank you. Yeah. I, I think um, another really key in that whole decision making process was that we had a front row seat at real Boston development mm. and knowing what that landscape looked like and. And we did that at a pretty large scale for a long time. And so um, we were able to see all the pitfalls before they actually happened and became pitfalls to transom, yeah. right? So like yeah. day one, we knew, okay, what do we need? Like, what are the biggest challenges that we're going to face throughout this cycle? And let's plan around it. Let's figure out how we can solve those problems going in rather than when they land on our plate. Yeah. Um, and that, that was really helpful because those can be, if you're not ready for those bumps in the road, and you haven't seen them yet. They they can be big bumps. Yeah. No, totally. I mean, I, and obviously you 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 had a you know pretty extensive career, not in and not just career, educational background too, going into the going into this. So obviously you've seen a lot of deals. You've seen a lot of you know probably things go wrong and in ways to overcome that. Can you, do you have an example or two of things that you would be like, oh, we really you know consciously looked out for that, or here's how we think about you know get staying ahead of it and finding sure. problems before they happen. I, I mean, I I would say. Uh, from the from the strategic early planning stage, one of the biggest challenges that most developers would face is personal guarantees on mm -hmm. on loans. And so even if it's not a repayment guarantee, it's a completion guarantee. Well, if you're out there and you're trying to do a $60 million project and you're going to need a $40 million loan, the lender is going to knock on your door and say, well, I need like, you know, I don't know, 15, 20 million dollars in like liquid assets. Mm. Well, if you don't have that, there's a big problem there. <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't, right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and so we, we thought early on, how do we solve the guarantee problem, right? Because that's going to be a problem. If I'm going to get a project up off the ground, I need to solve the guarantee yep. problem. Um, and so that, that's one. The other I would say is, you know, using the same example of a $60 million project, it it's going to take $20, $25 million in equity. Mm. So let's go solve that problem before it becomes a problem. And let's go do it early because by the time it's a, a, an issue in the deal, there's a million things going on. And it's very, it's very tough on time to just like find the deal, execute the deal and find the money to do it. If yeah. you've already got the money ready to go, it's just one less thing that you have to worry about. And those take a lot of time. Yeah. So I, how, how did you solve that personal guarantee problem? Did you, were your partners taking that on? Do you get non-recourse debt? You know, how, how did you try to solve those? Yeah. So um, to the extent possible, we would get non-recourse debt, but they still do require completion yep. guarantees, yep. which is basically a guarantee that says you promise to finish this building, mm. right? No matter how much it costs, if the costs go over what the budget on this page says, you got to you gotta pay up and finish the mm -hmm. building. Um, and so, yeah, we, we went out and found partners specifically that um, limited partners, institutional, yep. that, um, that were, were willing and able and had the balance sheet to provide those guarantees for us. Awesome. 
So maybe to jump in, I know, because one of the things, you know, you see about uh, transmit, you guys speak a lot to is about, you know, unconventional thinking, design oriented uh, thinking and projects and really, you know, what you guys try to bring and, and what we've seen with some of your projects that have been through to completion, whether it's Zero Athens, which we're lucky enough to work with you guys on or 212 Stewart, uh, you know, things like that are really unique design element that you guys like to bring to the projects. Was that something that was out of the gate, something you wanted to do at Transom? Um, I think... Yeah, yes and no. Um, I, I think we wanted to be out of the gate doing something different. I can't, I don't think it, that we knew that design was that thing. Um, but uh, we also knew that we were seeing a lot of like, candidly, pretty terrible buildings going up in town. <laughs> and we knew we didn't want to do that. Yeah, right, and so right, we identified, right. okay, we're trying to set ourselves apart as something different and unique. And we hate those buildings. So it was pretty easy to like fall into like, okay, what are we, what are we interested in? Well, we are interested in making buildings that aren't so commodity that stand out from their peer set. Um, one, one good example that I think helped us in the, the formation of that is, is that, um, and I give related a lot of credit the Clarendon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, my partner, yeah. Peter, um, at Transom was at related when they built that. And that was done in 2008 when the market was dropping and there was a discussion internally about um, should we should we lower the spec of this building, cut the costs, and make it cheaper? And the decision was made: let's not do that because the competition at that upper level is very very thin. But when you drop the spec, the competition becomes very very wide. Mm. So that's a in, that sounds obvious now, but in that moment when the markets are sort of collapsing all around you, it's tough to not yeah. start value yeah. engineering the nicest counters, the nicest cabinets, the nicest mm -hmm. facade. And so, uh, but, but they did, and they did that, and the project ended up becoming a great success because they had very little competition. Um, and so I think we took that as a lesson, right? Like, like if you can set yourself apart by design, then you differentiate your product and you're not competing against the entire market. Right. No, it's, it's, and it's another example of something you spoke about earlier is long-term thinking, right? And not, not get trapped by the, 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 the market varying up and down a little bit from time to time. Obviously, 2008 was more than a little bit up and down. So I can imagine the pressure that was on them at the time uh, to make a decision like that. So it's pretty impressive that that was, that was a sort of conscious and thoughtful decision to be made. And it's, I think it's similar in a lot of cases. We're having conversations with our clients now who are like, well, what's happening with the market now? Is demand dropping a little bit? Is there, are we entering a recession? Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of those sort of questions. Should we, you know, should we be, um, value engineering this a little bit more than we have already or not? And, and our, our point of view is almost always like, let, think long term. So I, I do appreciate that. Like, it's not just about the next six months. It's about the next six years, 16 years, and, you know, whatever the period of, of your investment criteria is. But, uh, I, I think that's a key part to consider, um, is, is really that long-term thinking. Yeah. Um, I, and it's not, um, I mean, it, it definitely differentiates the product. Um, I think each neighborhood, the definition of like what that design is, is, mm. is different, right? Totally. Um, so, you know, what that mean, might mean in Back Bay might be different than somewhere else. Yep. Um, but I, I think we try to think of design as an amenity as well. And so um, when you put those giant amenity packages inside buildings, it really kills the efficiency of buildings. And so you know, where, where a movie theater exists could, could be units. Are people really going to use those interior amenities? Is that movie theater going to be used in these locations? And so if, if not, then you can take that, that economic package of what, what you were giving up in units inside and what you were paying for that, and you can bring it to other aspects of the building, design being one mm. of them. So Stewart yeah. Street, for example, 
um, I think had, and you know, I give Howler and Yoon and Sasaki a bunch of credit for designing that building from an architectural perspective. Uh, but that's all on the outside of the building. So the amenity of design doesn't touch the inside of that building whatsoever. And that building's a really tight building. It's a 7,800 square foot site. So everything that you do inside that building is materially going to impact the efficiency of it and the economics of it. Mm, yeah. And so I, mean, I, I, I would say Zero Athens is kind of like that too. Right? Absolutely. Like, I mean, yeah. that's a building where that amenity is going to be like, I live in that building. Like, yeah. That building is super cool. Yeah. You know, from the outside. I mean, the design is really incredible and it might not be loaded up with the amenities that a lot of the competing high end apartment product has, but I think the rents are going to speak for themselves and are speaking for themselves because of that design and, um, you know, that that's again, another one, another signature one for you guys. That's pretty solid. Yeah. So. Thanks. That, um, we ended up using a, uh, a brick out of Denmark called, uh, uh, Peterson. The, the name of the company is called Peterson mm-hmm. brick. And we had done this like architectural kind of pilgrimage to New York city to explore all the best buildings in New York. Cause we thought there were way more buildings in New York that had some architectural significance. And there's this gorgeous building on bond street called 40 bond. Mm. Um, and they had used this, um, I think it was, uh, it was like, a, a maybe it was a clay product, um, but a bluestone, it was a bluestone product and we just fell in love with it. And, uh, we knew it was way too expensive, um, for that site. Uh, but we looked up the company, um, Neil, actually a partner of mine looked up the company and said, that's a great product, but it's way too expensive. But he found another one that was very comparable that actually was, was much more affordable, um, and something that we could implement here. So I think, I think we're the first or second residential product in the country, uh, project in the country to use that facade. Oh, wow. Um, it's been used on like some churches and some other, um, some other uses, but, um, we're excited about it. Yeah. That's a very, it's a very unique building. It's a very unique design overall. And I think it certainly stands out, you know, and you know, it looked, you know, even from the renderings early on looking at it, it was pretty, pretty incredible. But now in real life, it's even, it's even more incredible. So it speaks for itself. And and, and I agree with you. Like we've been talking a lot about amenities recently and like, how do we recommend, what do we recommend? And and oftentimes I think this, you know, everyone's chasing the, the newest, the coolest, the flashiest amenities, but in reality, what it comes back to oftentimes is just good design is important. And I think you guys got that. And obviously good location is critical. Like, like any real estate is very location centric. But even even beyond that, there's other things you can do with amenities that are just the convenience type stuff, the smaller stuff, like designing a good package room where people can open boxes on, on you know, and, 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 and recycle their packages before they bring them upstairs and not have, you don't have to have the rock wall in every building that you build type of thing, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's the way we typically advise clients, especially in the kind of, mid-market projects like a zero Athens, a 50, 60, you know, hundred unit project. Well, you, you guys are the experts in that. I mean, I, we look to you all the time for that type of feedback um, because you touch way more buildings than we do. You know, we talked about how long it takes to develop a building. So we don't, you know, for, we're, we're a small company. We don't develop in, in, in mass quantity. We are very selective about it, but you guys are able to, to see and touch and learn from all these buildings across your whole portfolio. So, you know, when, when I look at amenity spaces, First thing we would do is pick up the phone and say, well, I don't know, what, what does Charles Gate think? Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, I appreciate the kind words there. Didn't even have to pay you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so how do you, you know, I know you talked about using, you know, the, this, you know, European brick and I, I can only assume, and I don't know, you know, the cost breakdown, I'm assuming it's more expensive. I'm just going to guess. So how do you, how do you make that decision? And I think, I think differentiating is a, is a, is a great way to go. Cause you know, when you craft, um, something that has more of an impact on fewer people, you drive a better market response and try to design something, you know, that appeals a little bit to everybody. 
but how do you how can you justify that you know between your development team and your investment partners how to make that investment to maybe spend a little bit more on on uh, a better material a better finish a better design overall yeah. more expensive architect it, maybe it's a, it's a great question and that that's the art of it um i think you know we mentioned this kind of exploration of new york buildings but Candidly, it's probably easier to do it in New York because you can afford to do it. Mm. You know, you're going to have exit prices that are way in, in excess of what you're going to see um, in Boston. And so the, the challenge is uh, to design within the budget, not just to design. Um, and uh, and the, the brick I referenced is actually not that much more expensive than mm. a metal panel. Um, and, and the way it is is because the way it goes, the way it's installed is actually quite fast. And so when you're taking into account not just the price of the brick, but how long it's going to take to install that brick and the labor costs associated with that, and the labor cost is a big part of that, mm -hmm. um, and you do the math and you say, okay, well, this is actually like a 3% premium over a metal panel, but look what we're getting for it. And so that, the math has to be sort of comprehensive in how much it costs to, to bring over, to install it, and compare that and say, is that worth the premium that we're going to pay for it? And we do that you know, on a bunch of different decisions in a building. Yeah. And, and so, so that's an interesting uh, point of view, which I, I guess I hadn't thought about is when you're looking at all, everything that comes into it, not just the material cost, but the labor, how's it going to get installed? How do you, how do you stay ahead of like what the possibilities even are out there? Is it, it, maybe it's you choosing the right architect or design team to work with that can help you and inform those decisions. Is that where it comes from? Or is it something you guys just try to look at the latest design trends and material trends out there? Yeah, it's, it's, it's all of the above, I think. Um, a lot of it is leaning on, you know, the people who do this for a living, right? They're very good at it, um, and, and that's why we work with them. And, and so they are on top of the leading trends. Um, but this is also what we love to do. And so whenever, you know, you're on vacation and you're walking by a building and you notice it and you're like, wow, that's like really cool, and you snap a picture of it, that's going to come back in your brain when you're designing the next building and be like, oh, I wonder if we could do that here. Or you drive by a project and you're like, I really like the massing of that. That's an interesting way that it steps back on and, you know, d you know, makes a move on that floor or whatever, whatever the move might be. And it just kind of registers in your brain as this catalog of it. And hopefully it comes back one day if it, if it, if it actually like meant something to you, it'll come back in your brain and you can start thinking about it. Um, I don't know. That probably yeah. we're probably giving ourselves more credit than we did. It's more like, yeah, that looked really cool. Let's do that. Let's just copy that. <laughs> no, it's a, it, it's it's really interesting. I, I, I we like to dive in, into this. Is one of the things we want to talk about because in Boston, it's a very conservative kind of development space, really. And you guys are doing things that are, are I would I would describe as very unique in the market. In, in a lot of cases, a lot of the things you're working on now and projects you've you've done so far. So you know, a kudos to you. And I'd, I'd love to see more than that from my own selfish point of view. So I can find more Boston's and build uh, more buildings in Boston that I'm like, Ooh, that's a cool one. I got to snap a yeah. picture of that. So really kudos. It's, it's impressive and cool to see. Thanks. I, I think, um, some of it is also just out of necessity. Um, we, we tend to find sites that, um, that are oddly shaped. <laughs> um, and I think that's because maybe some of the market looks over that, Oh, that's not a rectangle. So, you know, that's going to be weird and that's not going to lay out well. Um, and we kind of roll up our sleeves and try to figure out that puzzle. Um, and I think we're able, we're able to be a little more competitive on some of those sites where it's not so clear cut and straightforward. Um, yeah. and Athens, I think is a really good example. That's like a triangle site. Um, and if you picture the, the floor plan of that, it kind of like sawtooths out and that's to follow the sort of contour of that triangle, but not have like a slanted wall that would never fit furniture. Yeah. So it follows the contour of the sight lines but it creates a bunch of corner units and a bunch of opportunities for light and air. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it's just, just kind of 
I think any anybody could do this stuff. It's really just spending the time um, and thinking about it in an earnest way to try to find the solution. So, yeah, sorry, God. Uh, I was going to say that that might be a kind of a, a, a good segue. I would say you know design obviously is one of your kind of signatures as Transom, but um, I think about how well you guys have been able to entitle sites and um, you just kind of reference like stepping back, right? Like Athens, obviously, that sort of backs up to, you know, what's more of your traditional Southie residential area. And, you know, a lot of these projects where you have to look at the massing and, and get creative with what you're going to propose. And, you know, I think, again, that's been something that you guys have done really well. How do you How do you kind of approach that? on a sort of macro level and then can you give a kind of spe a few specific examples of what you guys have done that might be kind of looked at more as you know for lack of a better cliche kind of outside the box on how you've entitled some projects and and kind of optimized what you know probably you know basically how successful the project can be from an roi standpoint and and maximizing density and and um and performa basically as as it relates to your approach on entitlements. I know you've got something going in the Fenway right now that, you know, is kind of evolved in different ways as you guys have been, you know, looking at it over mm -hmm. the past six months because we've had some conversations and sort of where you've landed on that. And I think that's probably a pretty good example of of what I'm talking about. And you mind kind of talking a little bit specifically yeah. about that? <clears throat> yeah, of course. Um, so I think um, there's just, it's there's no rocket science here. It's a few key ingredients. Um, one is just honesty and transparency in the community. I'd say that's the number one. Mm. Um, and I mean that in a, in a way of like truly honest about it, telling them exactly how, how you think it's going to work and how in listening to them and making the changes that, that they, that they um, are, are in favor of. Um, and I think that's really important is an open and honest dialogue with the community. Um, and, uh, but also that, that is an open dialogue is a two-way street. So in the case of Stewart street, we went in and we were very open about the height that that neat building needed to be to get off the ground. None of those neighbors wanted, um, to see that parking lot operated at, you know, the, the way it was. Um, but at the same time, the way that the economics of that site worked, it would never work as a six story building, just not going to happen. And so we went in day one and said, look, this building has to be 19 stories tall. That's where it's actually going to financially pencil. If ever, if ever this building's going to get off the ground, it's going to have to have height to it. And so we're, we're going to stick to the 19 stories, but we want to hear you about how it should be designed, how it should work, how it should look. What can we do in the public realm to make it better for you? How can we mitigate that height? But the height's important. And so, that, and so there was a, a tremendous dialogue back and forth, and we learned so much from that neighborhood and that building became far better because of the neighborhood mm. and their feedback. It's their neighborhood. Yeah. We're just, we're there temporarily and we're, we're trying to become a part of the community, but we're never going to be like the person who's lived there for 40 years who knows every brick in their streets. <laughs> it's just, there's a tremendous resource there and we try to listen to it as openly and earnestly as we can. I, th I think that's a critical a critical point because and it's often missed is in I think in a lot of different dialogues for a lot of different policies and everything is people just don't want to talk honestly with each other in a lot of cases and they're yeah, just like right, right. you know they're they're t selling a story that's not quite true or you know sort of making things and this happens far too often not to get on my soapbox on this podcast but I, but that approach I think is You're the right podcast. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, Go that, for it, man. I'll do a solo you show, maybe. Soapbox maybe a solo <laughs> yeah. show, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but 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 no, I I think I think 
and that that transparent conversation is what can educate sort of both sides in the right way. So we can look. You're telling the audience, uh, the uh, community, we we need 19 stories, or this is impossible to do. But we want you to hear your feedback on everything else that we can adjust. That is not a constraint of of the height that we need here, and have that open dialogue is, I think, again, a, a very yeah. important piece of of not just the real estate development puzzle that you guys are doing, but across society that we're lacking right now. Yeah, ag yeah. agree. I mean, it you, it's hard sometimes to just tell the truth because you know that it might not be received that well. But at the end of the day, if you're going to get a project off the ground, you just have to. There has to be certain truths to this. These are real economics. These are expensive projects. They need real investors, and they're not just going to throw money at a project that doesn't work. And so there is a truth in there, and if if you're open and honest about it, people can understand it. Yeah. yeah. How do you guys look at sites when you're going, you know, when you're exploring new opportunities or new sites, you know, in terms of whatever the underlying zoning constraints might be, or if you're going into an unknown neighborhood, let's say, like, how, how do you think about that to the point where you even want to invest, you know, time and money to, to sort of look if it's even an opportunity? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. Um, I think that that's a bigger challenge for bigger companies where they have to um, attack multiple different markets. And we, we do business in the communities where we live and we've driven by them a million times and we've gotten dinner there. And so for us, it's easier to kind of know the street corners um, and to know like that this block is great and that block, you know, maybe doesn't get as much sunshine or it has a lot of traffic issues or whatever. Um, I'm making stuff up, but um, you, you, we know that we know the market in the neighborhoods pretty well. You know, if you ask me, you know, where's a good spot to develop in Nashville, I would be totally clueless as to how to answer <laughs> that. But there are companies that have to do that. Um, we're just, we're kind of a smaller size where we're to us, um, it feels like it's in our backyard. Yeah. And is that is that your your intention to sort of be that entrepreneurial, nimble development firm going forward? Is that, you know, as far as you look at what's Transom look like in, you know, three years or five years? Is that is that the kind of the game plan to be that nimble, we, we, we're going to develop where we know type of firm? Yeah, I think we'd, we'd like to expand out and we're starting to do that a little bit more. I mean, when Transom started, we were three people and we were looking in four or five neighborhoods and we were really taking the the, the experience that we had of urban development and bringing it to Transom. Um, but we've now grown our team. We've added a bunch of great, really smart people um, and uh, have, have uh, started our first project out of the city, out of the urban core. It's a, a, a um, suburban project in Framingham. Mm -hmm. um, and we're, the idea there was like, we're going to take that same like design sense and we're going to bring it here where that might stand out quite a bit. Um, and you have to do that within the budget, like we talked about, but, um, so long winded way of saying, I think we are interested in, mm. in moving out further. So we're not talking about different States or anything, but we are actively trying to grow the platform, trying to grow the team. I think despite the economic hiccups, we actually see some of this as an opportunity to, to start like growing, um, and, and buying sites to start entitling them. And we see a lot of those opportunities. So we're kind of looking at this this economic uh, downturn, if that's what you want to call it, as a pretty good opportunity to seize on some of that. Awesome. Yeah, nice. Uh, you know, I mean, you guys have obviously built a fantastic track track record of thinking outside the box, finding those projects that may not, you know, maybe overlooked by other developers or, you know, odd sites or, you know, interesting dynamics. So, you know, that track record is impressive and, and, and basically only it's been six or seven years, I think, or so. Yeah, since yeah it's been about seven. Yeah. It's a track. Yeah, no, it's it's an awesome track record already. So Thanks. you know, congratulations, and love to keep keep it going here. 
Um, you want to, you know, dive into, I'm, I'm curious if we want to talk about the Holy Trinity project you guys have going in Fenway and sort of the, as it relates to, uh, we can dive into talking a little bit sort of affordability and affordable housing as well, but yeah. you want to give us a little background on that yeah, about to dive in? Yeah, of course. I mean, it, it, it's such a unique project, um, and, uh, really brought together a couple key players. Um, one being the church. Um, I mean, I think the church, Holy Trinity church saw a real opportunity, um, to use some of their excess land to, help create um, affordable and, and middle-income housing. So they get a ton of credit for that. I think they've done a great job, and it wouldn't be possible without them to do it. Um, and the other key player is uh, Samuels. Um, and so the the Boston Globe reported just the other day that um, Samuels is making a significant contrib- contribution mm-hmm. um, to that project, um, which is a, a critical piece to help it get off the ground. Um, and so uh, it's 115 units. Uh, 48 of those are going to be affordable home ownership units, um, and the remaining 67 are going to be market rate units. Um, but um, really started with with uh, knowing that the church had that desire, which they get a ton of credit for, and us being able to say, we know that there's a, a an affordable housing problem, especially as it relates to home ownership, and how can we solve that problem? And this project seemed to be the perfect opportunity to solve that problem. Um, and, um, and so it, it's really sort of lightning in a bottle. I mean, we had the right, the right people with the church, um, Samuels, um, stepped up and made a major contribution and then kind of transom and Harbor on, uh, we have a partner in that deal mm-hmm. named Harbor on, um, and so, uh, the, the sort of, uh, day-to-day work of developing it, um, will be the responsibility of transom and Harbor on, um, uh, but, uh, but couldn't have happened without the, all these ingredients that came together at once. Mm, exciting. What is your take on, you know, we, when we think about the affordability crisis overall in, in Boston and, and frankly, a lot of major cities now, how, how, how are you guys thinking about it? And I know you had a lot of experience with that at Beacon as well when, you know, primarily an affordable developer. Um, how, how, how do you think, what do you see in the market right now that's happening and, and where do you see um, things evolving for the need for more housing and, and to, you know, hopefully grow more affordable housing in, in a lot of cases as well? Yeah, I mean, this is the question. It's like the hardest one, and if I had the answer, you know, <laughs> it would be on this podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I would be. I, I absolutely would be. Uh, Thanks, dude. <laughs> um, it's it's just such a challenge, and it, it's not a new challenge, but it's it's one that continues to get worse, as as we mentioned. Um, and so, um, and it, it's not just like low low income. I think when people think affordable housing, they think like super low income, but there's certainly a problem there, but the problem goes all the way through middle income. And sometimes you'd say it's even harder in middle income because there's no resources for the middle income. Um, and there's so many reasons. And, I, you know, I, I will never pretend that I can solve them. There's so many smarter people working on, on these problems. Um, but, you know, construction costs are a major contributing yeah. factor to this. Land costs are a major contributing factor to this. And Boston's geography in particular, right? Because, like, half of our geography is ocean. Mm. And then Boston in itself is not that large geographically. And then you start to get into a lot of towns where it's very difficult to get zoning and permitting done in any of those. And so there's this pressure cooker that constricts supply. And so to me, the question becomes like, how do we thoughtfully make supply happen? How do we create supply? Because basic sort of macroeconomic fundamentals is like that that's going to bring prices down. Um, And so the solution is just, I think really tough. I think that, you know, you've got a lot of efforts happening in city hall and Michelle Wood, um, mayor Wood doing a lot of, a lot of the work there. Um, 
and she's progressively pushing um, affordable housing, um, bigger payments from the life science buildings, yeah. um, which I think is appropriate, honestly. Uh, I mean, there have there has not been a lot of mitigation going on coming out of those buildings in a long time, and there was a tremendous economic boom that happened there. That um, So I think that that's appropriate. Um, and then uh, I back to the supply thing, um, I think that what, what the city did in the south end with that south end plan mm-hmm. um, and then what they're doing in Dorchester Avenue with the Dot Ave plan yep. is a very smart way to do it. Um, they're allowing density and basically in return for additional affordable housing. Yeah, yeah. And those are great nodes to do it at where they're, they're undertaking comprehensive zoning where developers can come in and say, I understand what I'm getting and I can actually permit in that and that I have predictability in permitting in that zoning. Yeah. And that's so important from the development community. And it already by that time has neighborhood feedback. The mm-hmm. neighbors have been involved in a multi-year planning process from very, very early on. So there's no surprises from the community either. So it's truly, to me, the answer. Like you get the development community and the community and the, the neighbors and the city and everybody's in the room together figuring out how we can do it. Yeah. And then once they go to do it, it's already been figured out. And so to me, yeah. that's like the best way to do it. And I, I really hope to see Dorchester Avenue you know, finalized and to see some of those buildings um, actually built um, because I think you're going to see grade density there. It's right on the red line, and it's going to be a real contribution to not only supply in the city, but you know, significant affordable housing in those buildings as well. Yeah, and I, I think that's exactly right. I think it's that that honest discussion about the need for more density in return for a higher affordable percentage is really the only way to economically make it work. And if you can develop, um, you know, comprehensive zoning, it doesn't have to be totally citywide, but at least in a decent chunk regional yeah. parts of the city yeah. yes. around, especially around transit, we can, that predictability is so important. So, you know, developers like you and others can go in and understand without having to spend, you know, a year just trying to figure out what may be possible there and all that time and might just do that, but have some predictability so they can actually make, you know, actual real investments in, in that. But I don't see there's any other way to do it no. besides saying more density in exchange for that more more uh, affordable percentage or otherwise yeah and again in these specific pockets with predetermined zoning requirements that will take they'll take it'll take the shock factor out of like that that one-off project that comes in and everyone goes bonkers over it um where you can say hey look we did this collaboratively right like the community was very involved in creating this this new zoning and this project fits within that, and so you need to look at it holistically and not on this one-off basis, and over, you know, potentially have an overreaction to a, to a specific project because you know we both just said it, but like it's Captain Obvious here. But density means inventory that will actually move the needle to yeah. create some semblance of balance in the uh, in the it. supply problem. To, to know, me, that's the answer. The demand, right. Um, but it, I guess that I mean nothing is without challenges and. Um, I guess the, the challenge there is where, where are those right, nodes? Because right. I think they nailed it with the South End. I think that was a great spot, you know, and, and, and it worked, right? You, you've got so many buildings that popped up around the Whole Foods there. Um, it, so there was real tangible results that came out of that. And then Dorchester Avenue, I think we're early in that story, but it's going to work. Um, if you look at the, the ownership, the land ownership, it's all very institutional. Mm-hmm. These, are, these are developers that know what they're doing. They have the pockets to do it. 
Um, they have the experience to do it. And so it's just a matter of time. It's going to happen. Yeah. Um, but like, where else um, can we can we place real density um, and, and real affordable housing? Yeah, well, and I would argue that it's, you know, it's it's not just a Boston thing. It's got to be a regional thing, right? Yeah. And a yes. statewide thing. Yeah. And so, you know, you see some some positive changes with the MBTA, you know, zoning um, changes. Well, for some, uh, increase to make it easier to plan around MBTA stations and transit stations. But um, but still, there's still far too much of the attitudes where we don't want more housing in our in our towns and neighborhoods that that has to get. I, I think we need more state leadership to solve for those problems, statewide leadership, because, you know, frankly, it's just. It's a it's a difficult bear without having an honest conversation, and oftentimes, you know, the very town local politics tends to devolve into you know not real honest conversations. Mm -hmm. You know, unfortunately, too often. But right. you know, I think I think there's enough people at least thinking in the right direction that this this is this is a, a problem that is going to get solved only with more housing, not to try to restrict or make it sort of more expensive uh, to build. And we'll see. I'm 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 hopeful, but it's going to be a long haul. To your point, there's a lot of constraints, there's a lot of challenges to, to do it. But yeah. But we I mean, have to. We have no healthy, choice. They're healthy problems. These are problems because people want to live here. Mm. They're moving here, um, and so we're trying to we're trying to solve that problem. You know, if everybody fled Boston, we we would have a solution. Um, <laughs> luckily, that's not the one. So these are these are healthy growing pains. Yeah. Well, they're growing pains, but um, we need to. Um, I think everybody knows that we need to try to solve them as yeah, best we can. Totally. Um, well, good, good, good conversation on that topic. Hopefully, we uh, spurred a little action to try to solve affordable. <laughs> no. no. But um, so so talk to us about, you know, what are some of the things you've learned over your career that that, you know, maybe people just starting or newer development developers or development companies should think about that you've kind of learned, maybe some lessons learned, mistakes made, yeah. kind of challenges overcome? Yeah, it's hard. Um, I would say, I mean, just very candid feedback. It's hard. Yeah. Um, I think that there's a perception out there that, you know, oh, these developers, they're, you know, it's so easy. They make so much money. It's 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 um it takes a lot of time to do this. Um, and if you look at sort of um, the leadership, as you might think of it in town of developers, very, very rarely do you see a 30-year-old, right? These are generally people who have been at it their entire lives. Um, and there's a reason for that. It's, it's, it doesn't happen overnight. It just maybe seems like it does to the outside world. Um, and so um, I would say that you have to be really passionate about it and you have to have really thick skin. And you're going to have to get up every day at it and add it and add it and it'll eventually work but it's not um it's not overnight success um and i think that that's just a, a reality that's probably misperceived in the market this is it's a tough business yeah yeah C certainly is i mean we've seen you know i know the perception is that every project you know an incident gets entitled it's a home run financially but it's far far from it <laughs> far from it and you're very you could work five years on a project and you're 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 subject to the Federal Reserve changing interest rates overnight. And you go, <laughs> oh, right. well, that just wiped out millions of dollars of my work that's happened. Um, yeah. and, uh, and and during that, you're you're writing checks. You're not receiving them. Um, and so um, it's, uh, it's, it's difficult. It's very capital intensive and difficult. Um, and But it's, it's super rewarding, too. Yeah. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, I would say that, it, that the, the lesson there is that you have to really want to see it through and persevere to the end. Mm, awesome. And, and then what, what is, you know, if we were to say, okay, if you're a step back, look at the, at the industry overall and say, what's one thing that you disagree with that maybe most other developers or development companies agree with, if anything? Oh, that's a really tough one. Um, I think, um, I, I think a lot of people would say that it's tough. It's hard to solve this like affordable and middle income 
um, problem that we have. And so maybe we won't try. Let's just do what we know. Um, and I think that the, the, um, what, we, what we try to do differently is think about creative deal structuring. Um, and sometimes that has to really come outside the box and it comes with, with certain risk. Um, but, um, I think like the Holy Trinity deal might be a good example where most people would say, well, how am I going to finance half of this building as a for, as affordable housing? But yet we, you know, took the extra step and found, you know, Samuels and found the church and we found like special ingredients there that actually solved the problem. Um, and so I think um, it just takes it takes more work and more effort to to uh, to actually come up with creative things rather than in the box things. Mm. Those are never the easiest ones to do; they're the hardest ones to do. Um, but uh, it's it's um, it's something that a lot of people aren't aren't looking at and aren't doing. Mm. And do you feel like do you guys or do you feel like you're taking on more risk with those types of creative deals, or do you do you, are you comfortable just because you're that's just the way you guys are made as as a development yeah, firm? It's time. It, it takes so much time to do that. So you're spending a lot of your personal time trying to figure out and, and, and work this puzzle. And you're hoping that there's actually, you know, an answer at the end of it, but there might not be. Mm. And so if there isn't, then you could have wasted, you know, a year or more trying to figure out a puzzle that couldn't be solved. Mm. Um, and so there's a lot of dead ends, you know, a lot of phone calls that that didn't work out. We thought that would work out, didn't work out. Let's try something different. Let's try another path. Um, and so time, time is, is important. I mean, you know, money, um, for a good idea, we, you can attract money, but you only have so much of your own time. Um, and so I'd say the biggest risk on those is, is just time mm -hmm. and trying to run every dead end down and try to figure it out and no stone, stone left unturned to make sure that there really is an opportunity there and that there's a way to solve that puzzle. Yeah. And so in, in terms of something like that, or really any part of the business, you know, between you and your partners and the, and the team you guys have, how do you, how do you, how do you kind of divide up your, your roles and who, who does what? Is it, you know, you guys have functions you work in or different each, you know, lead a project or how does that work with you guys at Transom? Yeah. Um, so we all, we all, at a small company, we all sort of get our hands dirty on this stuff. So, um, uh, we all are kind of fully involved in everything. Um, but um, my partner, Peter, comes from a land use and zoning background and uh, ran the kind of related deal shop for a long time. So he handles a lot of our permitting and zoning um, and, and like sort of, you know, city hall mm. type relationships. Um, I come from more of an acquisition and finance background. So um, I'm generally more heavily involved finding the sites, structuring the deal, finding how to, how to finance them on both the debt and equity front. Um, and then my partner, Neil, um, crawled out of a construction trailer, as, as, he, as he likes to say. Uh, I've heard him say that. That is yeah. accurate. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's... Loves a, the Carhartts and the flannel shirts. He does. Yeah. He's got a great beard. I'm jealous of his beard. Super jealous. Um, yeah, totally. But, um, I mean, kidding aside, he's super talented at yeah. what he does, and he's been doing it for a long time. Um, and so he knows how to build buildings inside out, upside down. Um, and so while we all do everything we you know we we tend to have our core skill sets um, we brought two people on to the team uh, a guy named Carson uh, Land who came from uh, WS and Starwood um, and so he's helping us on the acquisition front as well a uh, critical member of the team and then Todd Stafford who actually um, worked on our Stewart Street project for Consigli mm, uh, cool. and so he knew us um, through that project um, and he came on board about a year ago um, just under a year ago um, so just starting to build out the team and, and try to round out those skill sets and, um, like I said, grow the portfolio a little bit. But 
you know, the team's the most important part. It's who yeah. you work with every day, spend so much time with them. Um, and these are great people. Yeah. No, that's for, for, for me, you know, that's one of the most exciting things about just having a business of any business is building teams and, you know, working together and finding ways to sort of develop those relationships over time and, and, you know, have fun, hit challenges, you know, head on, be honest with each other and, 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 and succeed. And that's, what's most fun to me. It doesn't matter. I don't think what kind of business you're in, but that's really what makes it so exciting. So how big is your team now? You guys have a big team. Yeah. We've got about, a, uh, just uh, about 115 total now. Wow, yeah. So, crazy. yeah. So, um, just, uh, so we're, we're, we're scaling up and looking to continue to grow. And so a lot of exciting things, uh, a lot of exciting things ahead, I yeah. think for us, Yeah, that's including awesome. this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. So, so, I mean, but you, you may agree, like, I think the, the team part is the biggest asset. I mean, it's, it's how you run everything every day. It's the vibe. It's it's the company culture. It's so important. Um, and you know, I mean, we're we got we're just five people. You got 115 people. So. <laughs> no, I, but it's true though. I mean, I think I think the, the what I usually say or often say is that the only true differentiator of any business is is your is your team, and which is also a function of your culture. Mm-hmm. And so that's really what I think is most important. And you know, there might be you know. 100 other developers in the city alone, there might be 100 other, you know, management firms in the city alone. But what makes us unique is our people and our team and how we assemble and how we have build the culture that we build. And, and so that's really what it comes down to for a true differentiator. Um, and and that's, that's why it's important for us to focus on that and build that and, yeah. and, and strengthen that as we go forward mm-hmm. here. Uh, one one last question, then we'll wrap up. But I'm I'm curious if you could share any trips, uh, uh, not trips, t- uh, tips or secrets to how you guys, since you're on the acquisition side primarily or or, or functionally a lot, um, what are your what are your tricks for for deal flow? If you can share any, how do you find deals that are that are I in mean, transit wheelhouse? W- um, we have real really two avenues. We do the broker world, like you know a lot of people do, um, and um, uh, that it's a sure transaction. So there's some time savings there. You might not get the best price in the world, but, um, but, uh, if you like the real estate and you can see something that maybe others don't, then it's a great way to source opportunities. So those relationships, um, but it's really just like being around and in the community for so long in those relationships. Um, uh, they tend to take a long time to come to fruition. Um, but, uh, they, they tend to be our favorite deals. Um, and, uh, you know, it, relationships that you think would have nothing to do with real estate one day will come back to you and um and someone will have a friend who owns something and they said you just got to talk to you know brian or or neil and um and you know peter peter knows that town really well you should talk to peter and so we get a lot of that happening um we uh we bought um 158 units of permitted land up in um framingham um that came to us through a, a personal relationship of peter from his town in swampscott um, he knew the guy really well. The guy was ready to sell it, and he called Peter up and said, "Hey, we should talk about this. This is a site that I think a lot of the big companies that you would know by name have have looked at and chased. Mm. Um, and we got it just because of those personal relationships. Yeah. Mm. So I, you know, it's all like every everything else. You got to treat people nice and treat people with respect, just like you want to be treated. And they they're, they're gonna like you and call you back and say, I, this is a good guy. You should, you should talk to this guy.' Yeah." Without a doubt. I mean, that goes back to the same thing. If you can deal with people transparently and honestly, whether it's a community, whether it's a partner, whether it's a vendor, I, I think that that stuff is what plays and wins the long game, right? You might, you know, if you're trying to rip people off and make more money in the short run and screw people, that's that's gonna that's not gonna work long term. No, the reputation it's it's yeah. a, it's a small world, and the reputation is something that is just most important to us. Yeah, totally. Yep. 
Um, so we'll, I think we'll start wrapping up here. But uh, anything else we we didn't ask you that we should have asked you? Or anything else you want? Uh, I the thought audience you guys were know? calling me to invest a hundred million dollars. I didn't get that question. Where can you put the money? <laughs> Do I have a deal for you? You send send me your wire info. <laughs> no, this has been awesome. I appreciate you guys having me in um, and uh, taking some time to to talk to us. I think. Um, you know, we try to be as transparent and as honest as we can. We're just, you know, we're trying to be out there, have fun, uh, do stuff that keeps us interested, do stuff that we think the community would like. Um, but at the same time, you know, keeps us engaged. Um, and I appreciate you like putting a little bit of a light on that. And, you know, to us, it's a big deal to the rest of the world. It might not be, um, but it's exciting and um, it's fun to do this. Yeah. Well, fantastic. No, just thank you for coming in, man. It's uh, definitely great to, you know, hear some of your insight and, get a little bit deeper into the backstory on how you guys got to where you are and, um, you know, really, uh, really impressed with what you guys have been able to accomplish. And I know there's a lot more coming. Yeah. Thanks. And, um, we look forward to working with you guys too. Athens is one. Hopefully we'll have a couple more right around the corner. That sounds exciting. And, um, where do people find you if they want to reach out to you, if they have a deal for you or anything else? Um, I transomrealestate.com is our website. I think all of our email addresses are up there. So that's probably the easiest place to find me. Excellent. Well, Brian, looking forward to more conversations and working together more. And uh, thanks for thanks for today. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, PT. All right. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for listening to another episode of Empowered Returns. If you're a forward-thinking real estate investor or developer looking for actionable advice that will help you generate market-beating returns, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. I'm Mike Demella with Charles Gate, and I'd love to connect on LinkedIn and further the conversation for any specific questions you may have. Thank you for listening.